Good morning, y'all. Our scripture this morning is going to come from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, and we're going to do a little bit of participation for the reading for this, um, and you'll see why as we get into the sermon, but y'all can join me for the uh, poem that's bolded, and I'll read the rest. There's a season for everything, and a time for every matter under the heavens. A time for giving birth, and a time for dying. A time for planting, and a time for uprooting what was planted. A time for killing, and a time for healing. A time for tearing down, and a time for building up. A time for crying, and a time for laughing. A time for mourning, and a time for dancing. A time for throwing stones, and a time for gathering stones, a time for embracing, and a time for avoiding embraces, a time for searching, and a time for losing, a time for keeping, and a time for throwing away, a time for tearing, and a time for repairing, a time for keeping silent, and a time for speaking, a time for loving, and a time for hating, a time for war, and a time for peace. What do workers gain from all their hard work? I have observed the task that God has given human beings. God has made everything fitting in its time, but has also placed eternity in their hearts, without enabling them to discover what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there's nothing better for them but to enjoy themselves and do what's good while they live. Moreover, this is the gift of God, that all people should eat, drink, and enjoy the results of their hard work. I know that whatever God does will last forever. It's impossible to add to it or take away from it. God has done this so that people are reverent before him. Whatever happens has already happened, and whatever will happen has already happened before. And God looks after what is driven away. The word of the Lord. Well, happy autumn. It is, I think we're officially three days into the fall season. Um, and so I figured to set the mood this week, I would listen to a podcast that I found on the history of apples. Um, and so as I turned on this podcast, the, there was an ad that came on right at the beginning. Um, and the ad started with a voiceover that said, freshly fallen leaves, cozy warm mugs of cider, a crisp chill in the air. These are the things we love about fall. Now, I was wondering what this ad might be for, thinking probably like a seasonal pumpkin spice drink from a coffee chain or like a deal on sweaters from L.L. Bean. But nope, this was an ad for Best Western because of course nothing says fall like staying at the Best Western. <laughs> fall is in the air and there's something about the changing of seasons that consistently captures our imaginations. And advertisers have figured this out. They often know us better than we know ourselves. And this is why we see everyone from hotels to coffee shops to car dealerships Cozying up, cozying up next to us with their new autumn personas. 
I think maybe the Four Seasons hold an especially romantic place in my heart uh, because of where I grew up. I have some pictures here from my childhood home uh, tucked deep in the woods of northern Wisconsin. And I couldn't quite find like the same view from all four seasons, but I've got summer, fall, and winter. Um, and in northern Wisconsin, the changes of the season are so stark. It's like the character of the entire world is changing and everyone else is changing along with it. There are new sights and sounds and smells and each season brings new kinds of work. See, if you lived there, now is about when you would start digging through storage to find warmer clothes. Uh, you might start getting the hunting shack ready for deer season. And you'd be thinking about later when you have to take the dock out of the lake, take the pontoon out, um, get changed the regular tires to snow tires, and get ready to do it all over again come springtime. The passing of time brought these pragmatic responses, uh, but it also drew us into a series of emotional and psychological shifts. And I think for me, the place where you can see this the most clearly is my Spotify playlists. There, so many of them are just based off of the created order. I have summer days and summer nights. I have autumn, I have winter pre-Christmas and winter post-Christmas, springtime, springtime, rainy, and so on and, and so forth. Um, and I wonder if any of y'all can relate to this pattern of listening to music. If you're a Swifty, you've probably started to switch from 1989 over to folklore. Um, but these are the rhythms that the seasons set for us. Now this sermon is not just going to be me talking about fall and the seasonal cycles of life in the upper Midwest. That would be really fun for me and probably only me. Um, but here at Oak, we have been in a season of creation where we've been talking about different aspects of the world that we find ourselves living in and what they reveal about the creator that we worship. So this week, as we transition with the created order into the fall season, I want to look at a feature of creation that we all experience but maybe don't think about very often. And that's creation's role as a timekeeper. The rhythm of night and day, the turning of the seasons, the slow churn of years passing by, all of these things that humans use to measure time originally come to us from creation. And they reflect God's careful design of the patterns of the universe. Now, talking about time can get really abstract. If you've ever seen a Christopher Nolan movie, you know what I'm talking about there. Um, so to uh, ground our conversation, we're going to be looking at a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which we read earlier. Um, this is probably the most well-known reflection on time in the Bible. It begins by saying that there's a season for everything, a time for everything under the heavens. And what it's followed by a poetic reflection on the seasonal rhythms of life. This is one of those passages where I think we find meaning not so much by paying attention to what is said as how it's being said. Here, the cycles of life move to a steady cadence, almost like the act of breathing. You inhale, a time for crying. Exhale, a time for laughing. Inhale, a time for mourning. Exhale, a time for dancing. And so it goes. 
It's as if time rocks back and forth, carried along on the breath of the creator. Now this isn't to say that life is gentle. The poet doesn't shy away from the realities of death, mourning, hatred, or even war. But even these tragic times find their place in the ebb and flow of a deeper structure. Now something else to notice here is that there isn't really like a clear organizing principle to the items listed in the poem. We can see like pretty clear sets of four items, but beyond that, it's as if the author was just kind of writing things down as they came up. These groups aren't really obviously connected to each other. If we read carefully though, we would notice that there's seven groups of these four items. So even in the, random, the seeming randomness of this list, there is a sense of completeness and order. The number seven is really important in the Bible. It, symboli it symbolizes fullness and wholeness. In this creation season, maybe the prime example would be the seven days of creation. And so it gives this entire poem this um, underlying sense of fullness. Now, this is all neat, but what is it really doing for us as we read this passage? I think that in several ways, reading this passage simulates the experience of living in time. In the repetition, the reader feels what it's like to ride back and forth on the constant waves of the seasons of life. The randomness reflects, reflects the unpredictability of life, but that numerical completeness points to this sense that there's a mysterious, if inaccessible, order to the way time runs. Now that's a lot to hold together. Um, but I think that uh, this is one of those passages that in order to really get it, um, there's not a clear answer. We just kind of need to sit in it and let that steady cadence do its work. It's important to keep in mind that this passage is descriptive rather than prescriptive. This isn't the kind of thing, it's not a command to bend time to our will. It's not a command to figure out the exact right time of when to do everything. Verse 11 says that we might feel that there is some kind of divinely appointed order to our lives, but we don't have the capacity to figure that out completely. Besides, we usually can't control when we do things like heal or weep or laugh or mourn or lose or love or die. These are just things that happen and our job is to respond to them. Now, I don't want to reduce this beautifully mysterious passage down to a simple meaning, but I think it would be fair to summarize the situation being described like this. God is the creator of time and he has set an order to the times and seasons of the world. Everything that humans do happens within the context of this timed world, and our primary responsibility is to respond faithfully to the seasons in which we find ourselves, even if we don't understand that overarching scheme to God's design. So with this being said, I think we need to talk about some of the particular challenges that we face if we want to accept this, description of life and time as 21st century Americans. Um, these are challenges that are fairly new and they come uh, from the way that our world trains us to organize and think about time. So to begin to illustrate this, I don't want to put anyone on the spot, but could someone tell me what time it is right now? 
what time is it? 10.53. And how, how did you know that? <laughs> Look, yeah, looking on a phone. This is how we tell time in this world, is we, if someone asks you what time it is, you look down at your watch or you look at your phone and tell what time it is. Now, if we were living in ancient Israel in the time when Ecclesiastes was written, and I asked, what time is it? How would we tell the time? Looking at the sky. Yeah, we would look up. Now we look down, but if we were going to tell what time it is, we would look up and we would look all around us. We would look at the position of the sun or the moon. We would look at the way that the light plays off the world around us, creating shadows at different angles. We would tell time by interacting with the rest of creation. Now this might seem like a small difference, but think of how our conception of time changes in those two different actions. Today, time is reduced to information. It's just a number. I look down, I get it, and that's that. But for most of human history, telling the time was an activity that served as a constant reminder of our place in the world. A reminder that we are connected to the rest of creation and that we are part of a created world that is so much bigger than us. It came with a show. You couldn't tell time without also taking in the beauty that was all around, the dazzling display, or maybe terrifying, or maybe calming display in the skies. Time was beautiful, and now it's merely useful. Time has also shifted from a communal reality to a primarily individual one. This is why, in my opinion, the wristwatch is one of those inventions that has actually played like one of the biggest roles in shaping modernity. See, instead of thinking about time as a reality that goes above all of us, drawing us together into its rhythms, time has become small. Small enough that we can put it on our wrists or we can fit it in our pockets. Think of all the verbs that we use to talk about time. We spend time, we save time, we give time, we waste time, we manage time. All of these verbs imply some kind of possession. Time is something that we are supposed to take control of. Time is money, money is time. Time belongs to me and it belongs to you and we each have to figure out how we're going to use our little piece of time. Now compare this to an agrarian society like ancient Israel, where the seasons of life described in Ecclesiastes 3 were experienced by entire communities. They planted and harvested together. They mourned and celebrated together. They went to war. They enjoyed peace all together. Now just think of how fragmented time is for us today. For example, let's say I, had, I enjoyed this Sunday service so much that I wanted to have all of you over to my house for dinner on a weeknight. If we were to sit down and try to schedule a time that would work for every single person, first, how long would that take to find something that works for everyone in here? And also, how far in advance would we have to plan that to all be able to get on the same page for one weeknight? 
Now, I don't want this to turn into like an old man rant against watches or clocks or calendars or the very real and valid busyness that comes from trying to balance work and families and church and trying to find times to rest and all of the things that we do. I will say, though, when I was working on this sermon this week, my, the strap of my watch broke. So I don't know if God is trying to tell me something. But <laughs> um, Now, I think these recent developments in the way we think about time actually affects us more than we know, and ultimately, it affects the ways that we think about God. See, we can either view time as something that we stand above, mastering over it, or as a phenomenon that comes over all of us, carrying us along on its ebbs and flows. And in the same way, we can either view God as something that we stand above, something small enough to fit into our wrists or into our pockets, something that can be squeezed into a calendar, or we can view God as the creator and the sustainer of the universe in whom each of us holds together and has our life and being. It comes down to the way that we position ourselves in the world. So how in this context that we find ourselves in do we learn to view time the way that Ecclesiastes describes? It seems to me that paying attention to the timely rhythms of creation is the most tangible ways that we can reshape our imagination. Even considering the way that autumn and the changes, changing of seasons grabs our attention and our imagination, we can often take those rhythms of time in creation for granted. In my childhood home, we had this massive wall calendar, and we had uh, that we used it to write down everyone's activities. So, in a house with seven kids, it was absolutely full of practices and different activities and work shifts and days off and all of the things. We paid so much attention to what was written in each of those boxes, but do you know what we never had to worry about? We never had to worry about the lines that divided one box from another. That's because those lines represented the faithfulness of a God who without fail brought evening and nighttime and morning and divided one day from the next as anxious as the contents of each box made us, we never lost sleep over the reliability of the God who separates one day from the next. Each of those lines on the calendar was a testimony, a testimony that was delivered beautifully in the colors of the sunset, the tranquility of the stars, the subtlety of the sunrise over the trees in that little northern Wisconsin lake. But just think of how many times we ignored that display of glorious steadfastness because we were so focused on accomplishing all the things we wrote in each of those boxes. Ecclesiastes 3 describes the rhythms of time as the unchangeable terrain upon which we build our lives, our lives of faithful response to God but we can so easily become preoccupied with our own building projects on that terrain that we forget to appreciate the gift of the ground itself, that ground that is making it all possible, that is holding it all up. We begin to take creation's time, days and nights and the changing of seasons as a given instead of as a gift. 
So what would it look like to actually receive time as a gracious gift from God? Well, I think first it would change the way that we view our relationships to other people, especially people who are very different from us. Let me ask, if we were going, or if you were going to have to make small talk with someone that you've never met before, that you don't seem to have anything in common with, what's like the go-to topic of conversation? The weather. Yep, it's like the universal go-to. If you have nothing else to say, you can at least talk about the weather. I wonder how many of us uh, yesterday when it was a high of 64 said something along the lines of, it's finally starting to feel like fall. I definitely did. (laughs) This kind of small talk might make some of us uncomfortable, but I have a challenge for us this week. Every time the weather comes up in small talk, let's say a little prayer of thanks to God. Let's give thanks because this illustrates that even two absolute strangers living completely different lives have at least one thing in common. And that's that they both live in the seasons and times that God has woven into the fabric of this world. This church is filled with all sorts of different people. But we share this gift of time that we've received from God as a sign of our shared baptism, as a sign of our shared table that we come around, our shared savior, our shared grace-drenched reality that we are inhabiting together. The more that we acknowledge these commonalities, the more equipped we are to begin tearing down those artificial walls that we build up to divide ourselves from each other. This is why I wanted us to read the poetic section of our passage together, is that so we could start to participate together in these shared seasonal cadences. And finally, as our time comes to a close, Our response to the gift of time should be one of praise to the giver of that gift. Here again, the words from verse 14 from our passage today. I know that whatever God does will last forever. It's impossible to add to it or take away from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. Karl Barth describes the steady march of time itself as a silent but persistent song of praise to God. And I wonder if we remain still and listen closely, if we can begin to move in time with the beat of that song, feeling the tempo, feeling the chord changes, the staccatos, the rests. I wonder what words we might sing over that swelling instrumentation. At night, would we sing a song of thanksgiving because God has designed the world to give our weary bodies rest after the toil of a workday? In the morning, would we sing with Zechariah a song of praise because by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high has broken upon us, giving light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our way our feet in the way of peace. As the leaves put on their autumn colors, ablaze in deathly glory, would we sing a song about the mystery of Jesus, who by his great love for us has made a picture of death the most beautiful thing this world has ever seen. 
I think we would. And I think we would discover many more songs to sing with creation. That's because the God of time is not a cold, distant ruler, but is the God who entered into time as one of us, so that all time might be set on a course towards new creation, so that all death might be turned to resurrection. The God who has made time itself beautiful is making all things beautiful in time. Will you pray with me? Creator God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. God, even when it can be hard to see how your hand is working in the world around us, even when it can be hard to accept the seasons of time that we find ourselves in, when it feels like there's no end to the season of hardship that we might be in. God, we thank you for your steadfastness, that you are always with us. God, we pray, especially in this season, the changing of seasons, God, that we would be constantly reminded of your faithfulness to us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for saving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.